This is a hard episode to comment on since this is an interesting confluence of morality, politics, and uh, some interpretable stuff. And of course, and, and lest I forget, Vendetta. One interesting thing I want to mention before I move forward, the fact that this was written by Peter Allen Field, so I'm sure some of you out there who are science fiction fans will remember that name because he's a science fiction writer. But the other reason I bring that up <clears throat> is he wrote another episode that some of you may have heard of, something about moonlight and it being kind of pale. So... <laughs> uh, there's... this. Uh, mm, it's Stumble, stumble, stumble. I'm trying so hard to put myself in a totally neutral position rather than just saying, well, I think this, because even if I say things neutrally, my tone and my body posture is probably going to cross my opinion. So I'm just going to go ahead and say it up front. I think Starfleet's kind of in the wrong here. And I think Eddington is definitely in the wrong here. And I think the Cardassians are mega in the wrong here. Uh, did I miss anyone? No, I think that's good. Eddington says they're going to leave this guy to a slow death on a barely habitable moon rather than killing him. Because they don't kill people, right? We're not killers. Um, I mean, you do realize that that's still killing him, right? <laughs> I mean, he might escape if you leave him a comm or something or tell someone he's there. But seriously, that's... <laughs> If you if you if you lock someone in a box and then walk away and let them starve to death, or if you shoot someone, you're still killing them. It's just the box thing is is much worse. <laughs> just, come on, dude. The funny thing about this teaser, though, this teaser is really long. It's five minutes and eleven seconds. It's one of the longer teasers we have, and I mention that because, well, it's almost necessary in this circumstance, isn't it? This is the problem we kept having over on Babylon Five, and I kept pointing this out over there the need to constantly remind people of stuff that happened several episodes ago, or indeed, in some cases, even a full season ago. So what Babylon 5 usually did was the black and white flashback method, which I raised complaints about several times. Here they just do this first episode where Eddington and Sisko have a front-to-front -front, you know, confrontation, which basically recites all of their problems with each other. <clears throat> Not sure which one works better, but interesting. Um, I suppose I should... Uh, well, yeah. So, the Defiant goes after this raider. For some reason, the Defiant can't actually catch the raider, which is weird. But then, then they turn around, and they're like, hi. And Eddington activates a super mega virus that he somehow had access to, which somehow bypassed the attention of both O'Brien and Odo, specifically called out, which was also on the station. I, I would like to call bull on that one. I, I know, I know, it's not as bull as some other things, but... Really? Eddington just kind of had this this ace in his back pocket ready to go, and... Sure, whatever. So he shuts down the Defiant. <laughs> and then we start using the hollow communicator. Funnily enough, one of the only devices in the Defiant that continues to work, including the actual comm systems. Now, the hollow communicator is something I wanted to comment on because before I say anything else, what did you think about the hollow communicator? It shows up in this episode in um uh, oh my god Ju uh, Dr. Bashir, I presume it's like two three four episodes from now it's very soon, and that's it. 
two episodes in all of DS9 had this. Now, it's something similar is used over on Voyager with uh, the Think Tank episode. And apparently, Discovery has been using this as well. I don't even remember that off the top of my head. But I only watched the show once, like, God, a year and a half ago at this point. And that was season one, so I, I didn't really process it. But anyways... Point being, the Hollow Communicator was something that they were like, yeah, this is a great idea, let's push for this. And everyone basically said, no. <laughs> now, what I find amusing about this, and this is, so, okay, Iris Stephen Bear and Ronald D. Moore have both commented on the Hollow Communicator. Both were, like, were in favor of the idea. And they were the only two. Now, there's some obvious technical limitations with the Hollow Communicator, and, and that's obvious, because... Well, you're effectively projecting a green screen effect, you know, a splice effect on the camera there to show this person rather than just showing an image of someone who's being filmed over there on a thing, which is much cheaper and much easier to do. That is, in fact, why the view screen was originally invented. The problem there, <clears throat> the huge problem there, is that the view screen offers quite a few possibilities when it comes to a storytelling device, whereas a hollow communicator doesn't offer nearly as many given how they were showcasing it. Unless they did the Star Wars thing. And doing the Star Wars thing introduces two problems. Now you're probably thinking, what's the Star Wars thing? Um, this is really common in the TV shows, but even not. In Star Wars, when you communicate, a whole hologram of your body just stands there. Usually completely absent of any of the nearby terrain. Like if you're sitting, you might even just, they might not even show the chair, for example. This is all over the place in Star Wars. It's their primary method of communication. Just like the view screen is for Star Trek, the holo hologram thing is for Star Wars, right? Now, the first problem with that is that is very Star Wars. It is basically iconic to the Star Wars look, going all the way back to A New Hope with the um, the Princess Leia call for help. You know, the iconic call, right? So this is a very long-standing visual thing that is shorthand for communication in another setting, which could be argued to be a competing setting, which, ignoring the obvious legal ramifications, has some obvious creative ones as well. <clears throat> so that's problem one. Problem two is they never really get as consistent as they should with the hologram thing over in Star Wars. They never really establish the rules for it, which can lead to situations which are frankly ridiculous. Um, There's so many specific small instances where someone will basically be doing this and looking up like this as they're looking up because, you know, <clears throat> the actual shot we're shown is someone who's looking up at the person. Well, what are they saying on their end? And why are they doing this on their end? There's a lot of little problems with it that haven't really been solved. And they just kind of assume that we don't need to think about that. We'll just assume it works smoothly. Now, those, those problems could be solved. Someone could sit down and say, this is exactly how the hollow communicator works. And this is how the holograms work. But no one ever really did. Or at least they didn't that I saw. Maybe they did on Rebels. I still haven't watched Rebels uh, as of this recording. So maybe, I don't know. Regardless, this, this is why I look at the Hollow Communicator and I say, no, no, cut it. It's going to hurt the budget problems. And remember, they're already having budget problems on Deep Space Nine because the figures are down. And Voyager's the golden boy, right? So this is not a time to be trying to experiment with something like this. And frankly, unless you're going to do the Star Wars thing, uh, which, as I already mentioned, has some issues, I, I don't see a point in it. Just my opinion on it. I'm curious what you guys think. So, the entire computer system is down. Uh, actually, it's not. That's a lie. Because if the entire computer system was down, uh, then they would be a, a 
very quickly cooling block of metal and soon to be frozen flesh in space. But obviously, you know, the whole computer system isn't down. Just certain chunks of it, after all. We don't kill people, we just let them die horribly slow deaths. Why is there one other ship in the sector, by the way? I know I complain about this every single time it comes up, and I'm never going to stop. <laughs> Until they stop having only one ship in the sector. And it's an Excelsior, of all things. I mean, I like an Excelsior ship as much as the next person, but... <sighs> Anyways. So, Eddington, you know, contacts Cisco, and... Well, I'm going to go and give my opinion here. This is a vendetta. This is a personal vendetta for Cisco to Eddington. Now, we can infer that from other dialogue and other conversations, but honestly, I think the only bit that it needs to be said about that is the scene where he's at the pump the punching bag is he he, he he played me all right and he, what's my excuse is he a changeling no is he a being with seven lifetimes of experience no is he a wormhole alien no he's just a man like me and he beat me i think that really stucks in his craw for all of cisco's various qualities uh, a degree of i'm going to get the job done no matter what is definitely something i've always felt is a very cisco thing and I think this bothers him because he has a mark against his record, and because it's personal. Again, he, he was a friend with this guy. And because, well, Eddington is partially right. Uh, so, I'm going to give my opinion here again. There's a lot of opinion here. I'm, I'm looking forward to your guys' comments, because there's no way to talk about this episode without getting into opinion. There's not a lot of facts to debate, just opinions. I think Starfleet is at least partially in the wrong here, but more to the point... I think that the fact that Eddington has betrayed Starfleet has made Sisko uncomfortable with the fact that Sisko himself doesn't fully agree with Starfleet. Remember, Sisko himself is the one who, who angrily ranted in the direction of Kira, because she happened to be there, about how stupid Starfleet's policy was regarding the Maquis. The whole Paradise speech. One of my favorite speeches in the entire show. Right? Sisko gets this. Cisco understands this, and the idea that he is basically being forced into the mentality that he really is on the wrong side has got to severely bother him, especially since how much of a career man he's been for most of his life. So that's my final thing. You know, it's personal, it's professional, and it's uncomfortable, which is kind of a, a mixed thing. So I absolutely think this is a vendetta. I do like there's this one little bit where Odo can't help but rub in. Have you reminded Starfleet that they brought him on because they didn't trust me? Please remind them of that. Thank you. <laughs> it's just, just a great little bit. We need to talk about AWOL. How many of you guys have seen my Dragon Age lore run? And I think my second rumination I commented on this. But I know I did during the lore run. There's a scene... Uh, spoilers, but it's very early on in the game. There's a scene where someone goes through a ritual. I'll, I'll speak in vague terms. And, oh, no, he died. I don't want to go through this ritual. And he, and he draws a sword. And everything falls apart, apparently. <laughs> I didn't mean to destroy the world. It's just a back scratcher. So, you know. Anyways. And then he's like, oh, God. And then the guy stabs him and kills him. Now, there are a lot of things that can be said about that scene. It's actually, there's actually a lot that can be digested for those, like, eight seconds of, of screen time. But I bring it up because one of the topics that I came up with that was regarding AWOL. A military that allows its troops to just say, well, I'm out, has problems. Just to put it as simply as I can. And a military has to take that kind of situation seriously. Now, I know what you're going to say. Well, the Starfleet isn't a military. 
Or you're going to say, well, of course, because Starfleet's a military, depending on which side of the line you, you stand, land on that. But the funny thing is, obviously, I do think Starfleet is a military. However, even I will admit Starfleet is not a normal military. They're not a standard military. They're a purely volunteer force, which tends to operate pre predominantly at peacetime and is more associated with environmental difficulties than, than actual issues of conflict with external powers, right? Thus, they serve legitimately, without, without exaggeration or, or using this as kind of a euphemism, as more of a peacekeeping force, more of a National Guard kind of a thing, for the most part, in addition to the, the fact that they're drummed up as military forces when an actual war happens. Make sense? Having stated this, it's, I, I'm not going to reiterate my point as to why a normal military needs to, to, to crack down hard on AWOLs. Um, abandoned without leave, by the way. I, I, I don't remember if that's exactly what that stands for, but it basically means someone who jumps fence and says, Nope, I'm out, peace! And then they leave the military. Um, I'm not 100% sure if that applies to Starfleet. You know what I mean? It's an interesting thought, and I found myself thinking about it this entire episode, because, well, if someone just kind of decides to up and bail on Starfleet, so what? There are plenty of people who are signing up daily to be with Starfleet. In fact, at one point in time, back in TNG Season 1 and 2, uh, and arguably 3, Starfleet was so prestigious that they had the opportunity to, to, to fleece people, to be extremely selective. One academy, one, one contestant gets to be in the academy this year from this thing. What?! Now, that was bad writing. Nevertheless, though, this it is still a recurrent theme back in that era, which at this point would have been years ago, that Starfleet had the opportunity to have so many people coming in, they could get selective. They had the pick of the litter. They don't need to worry about an AWOL the way a normal military does, in my opinion. Now, that being said, Eddington is not a normal AWOL, because a normal AWOL is, I'm out, peace. But this is why I brought up the Dragon Age thing. Because the thing about Sir Joffrey, or whatever the hell his name was, I don't actually remember, is he didn't just bail. He pulled a sword. That's why I've got my back scratcher here. <laughs> he pulled a sword on his superior officer. Now, it wasn't a fully military situation and blah, 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 but that was the equivalent of what he was doing. He actually acted in a threatening manner, right? The response didn't happen until he drew his weapon and was threatening the military officer. Make sense? In a similar vein, if Eddington had just decided to bow out and then go join the Maquis, I don't think this would have been a deal. But Eddington used his position of power and access within the, in Starfleet to, to aid the Maquis many times and then join the Maquis, thereby drawing the sword, metaphorically speaking. So I kind of get why Starfleet is going so much after him. And I want to, I, the reason I'm banging on at this specific point so much is because that is Starfleet's goal here. You'll notice, if you pay attention to this whole episode, Starfleet does not give a crap about the Maquis. They're not after the Maquis. Cisco is not after the Maquis. Uh, Sanders. Sanders is not after the Maquis. Quick side note, Sanders was actually supposed to be a recurring character, but we all know Deep Space Nine hates recurring characters. <laughs> it's, it, it's true! I mean, look at him! He was going to be a recurring character, and they just didn't bring him back. Eric, uh, Eric Pierpoint. Actually did a good job of the role, I thought. He had some good, simple humanity in his presentation. They would later bring him back in uh, Enterprise as a completely different role. But anyways, <clears throat> none of them are actually after the Maquis. They're after Eddington. So what I'm trying to say here is if we were to consider this a political situation, if we were to step back and look at this from a political environment, 
what is effectively happening is that one sovereign power has has had a defect, a defector to another sovereign power who they don't have good relations with, but they're not at war with, and they basically have said, give us our guy back, and the other guys, of course, have said, no. And so now the first power, Starfleet, is devoting resources to getting their guy back. And they're going to drag him back and they're going to court-martial him. Now that makes more sense, because not only did he draw his sword, metaphorically speaking, but they need to discourage other Starfleet personnel from doing this. Again, they have plenty of people coming in, so someone leaving, not an issue. Someone leaving and sabotaging on their way out, much bigger of an issue, especially given how much of the Maquis is made up of Starfleet personnel, ex-Starfleet personnel. So, this is something that then qualifies as the typical AWOL response scenario. Make sense? <laughs> That's why I went on that whole tangent. I swear it was connected. <laughs> now... Um, the next thing I want to talk about is that uh, so Eddington Eddington is looking at this whole situation from a purely moralistic perspective he doesn't care about rules or politics or Cassus bellies or anything like that all he cares about is doing what he thinks is right he's kind of pulling a Kirk to put it as bluntly as possible whether you think Eddington is right or not that's up to you in truth I don't think that topic really needs to be discussed here because, mild spoilers, this topic will be brought up later. I, I plan to talk about the was Eddington right or wrong topic much later because it will come up. For right now, all I'm going to say is that, do you think Eddington was right? Because I love hearing your comments. And his whole thing is this is the right thing to do. He firmly believes this is the right thing to do. Cisco <clears throat> portrays him as if he's this fanciful romantic. And the episode, it feels like they're trying to slant him in a negative way, but I don't buy it. All I see is a man who really does think he's doing the right thing. And that's it. He, he's, he's taken up the cause, so to speak. He's taken off his badge, and he's decided to fight for what he believes in. How many times have we seen people do that in Star Trek? I don't buy that he's the bad guy here. In fact, I really hate to point this out, but despite some of the unpleasant stuff he does, like the, the colony uh, bioweapon thing and leaving someone to die on a planet thing, and the thing with the, the, the Defiant, all of that is actually still relatively small tier. None of that really pushes the boundary or crosses the line. Not to point this out, but Cisco destroys a Maquis Raider in this episode. Just flat out. Doesn't hesitate, doesn't communicate, doesn't ask for them to surrender. He just shoots them to death and they die. And I think that's very important because that effectively means that there is now an actual de facto state of war between the Maquis and Starfleet as a consequence of that action. Now, I know what you're going to say. Well, that that Cisco's argument, his casus belly for this, was in direct reaction to the attack on the... I don't remember the name of the ship. Sanders' ship, the Excelsior ship. <clears throat> I don't remember the name of the ship, sorry. And that is a valid statement, because what happened there was the Maquis did lay an ambush for that ship and then, you know, actually attacked them without provocation, effectively. In other words, the, the Maquis did start this fight. Okay. I'm willing to grant you that. However, it is hard to, to ignore the fact that what happened here was that the Maquis staged an attack to disable, whereas the Federation staged an attack to destroy. It is hard to ignore that fact in, in this circumstance. Again, this is where politics and morals kind of have to be separated, because we're, we have to look at this from both perspectives, don't we? What do you think? 
again, I, I really would like to hear you guys' thoughts on this one, because this is a mess. This is a big old mess. And what's funny, right at the beginning of the episode, uh, Cisco says, it's not that simple and you know it. These people were offered resettlement. Now I buy that, because that is very Federation. Okay, so we've signed a treaty, and we love treaties. Remember, this is back when the Federation was in love with treaties. And they said, okay, we've, we've basically given away all your land to someone else, but, but we're willing to offer to, you know, at no, at no cost to you, we're going to resettle you if you choose. And the settlers said no. Okay, so that is kind of on them, admittedly. But what I have to point out is, at the end of the episode, with some planets have been st sterilized or comedicalized or whatever you want to call that, to the point where they will not be habitable by either Cardassians or humans for a long period of time, they get resettled. Huh. Clearly what the Federation should have done, right from the beginning, is gone ahead and used bioweapons on the now Cardassian planets so the humans can't live there and just kind of forced the issue. Did I mention that the Starfleet, the Starfleet, Starfleet and the Federation, not officially, but Starfleet and the Federation, a Starfleet captain acting on the behest of the Federation drops bioweapons on a planet to make it uninhabitable for its current inhabitants. Now again, the Maquis did that too, in reverse, with the Cardassians, but that needs to be taken into account when you, when you analyze this episode. Um... Now, I also want to add one other thing. I have, I have a note here I want to comment on. And that's the fact that Eddington should have killed Sisko. He doesn't, because he's thinking of this from a moral perspective, and he doesn't think Sisko is in the wrong, at least not at the start. Sisko's just a guy doing his job. So, okay, fine. I'm not going to kill you, you are not evil, is basically the thinking. And that's the irony of it. Because if Eddington had been thinking of things from a political perspective, he would have killed Sisko the first time he saw him. In fact, it is the fact that the Maquis hold back so much against the Federation that has curtailed their efforts so many times in the past. The fact that they are trying very hard to continue to be the good guys. So from a real politic perspective, yeah. Of course, it's understandable why the Maquis wouldn't want to be playing at real politics, would instead rather bat the morality play. Because that's their whole modus operandi. That's their entire platform, is the morality of this. We don't want our home to lose our homes, right? It is wrong that they were given away. Screw the Cardassians, etc., etc. It is, of course, also worth noting that they seem to have no issues with, you know, killing Cardassians if it comes down to it, but that's another topic. I, uh... <laughs> this is a weird aside. You like the graphics of the Badlands in this episode? In previous episodes, and in Voyager, we see the Badlands, and it's this whole CGI thing they came up with. And this episode, it looks completely different. I'm honestly curious which version you like better. The reason I ask is because this one was made with practical effects. This is actually a, a chemical combination and something-something and dioxide, I forget what it was off the top of my head, that they introduced up, up against a black screen and then they just filmed it. So that's actually a physical thing you're looking at. Um, I just thought I'd point that out. I actually kind of like this version better, but I don't mind the old version. Of course, I've played STO, so, you know. The last thing I want to comment on, very minor point, because I've really already hit all the big points out here, is I love the ship sections. One of the things that we kind of take for granted is how automated things are. You know, I, 
This video that you're watching right now has had dozens of layers of automation into it, it getting it from me to you. Now, I still have to do some specific work. I have to manually edit it and slice and all that, and then I render everything out. But once that's rendered, the rendering software I use and YouTube and all of the things in between there handle most of the in-between stuff. Most people don't understand how much work goes into the codecs and the translation in different browsers and different plugins and different computers and graphics card and all that crap that has to go into making a video file play through effectively a streamed service on the Internet. There's a lot of automation in there. And that's how Star Trek is. A huge amount of Star Trek is automated. Of course it is, because that's technology in a nutshell. The more complex the technology, the more automation it requires. This is actually one of the reasons why, uh, you know, usually when you have a relatively unadvanced species, they have huge crews handling huge machines, because so much of what should be automated is being manually dealt with. I shouldn't say should, but you know what I mean. Now, I bring that up because... Effectively, what they did, and this is brilliant, and I love this, I really do. What they did is they took away a lot of the automation of the Defiant. It still works. It can still fly. It can still go to warp. It can still shoot. But all of that's going to be at a much less capacity than normal because all of that automation is gone. And there's really great sections which are very well directed, very well acted, and very well written. Where And there's some good audio design, too, where basically we have a lot more chatter on the bridge, as we're, and, and Nog's always over there relaying orders, and we have other people relaying information back and forth. It feels, well, it feels more manual, basically, because they have to accommodate for the lack of the computer system. It's really cool. It actually made me realize how awesome this kind of a thing can be. It's something I like a lot in certain other works of fiction, science fiction specifically, where they get into this kind of, uh, it's the homeworld thing, you know? You've played homeworld, right? You know, all, uh, all of the details and chatter and information and counter-information and orders and counter-orders. A captain says, take us out. There's a lot that's involved in take us out. The moorings, the clamps, the, the field there, this, this thing needs to be shut. This needs to be pushed back at this rate before we activate this separate engine and deactivate this engine and then set this new heading. All that stuff has to go and happen, and they do a great job of showcasing it. The only thing I take umbrage from is the fact that they decided to graze the station because Dax felt like showing off, apparently. That's actually ludicrously dangerous, and she shouldn't have done that. Other than that, I love it. It adds an old-style feel to the whole thing. And I really, really enjoy the way they did that. Uh, concurrent dialogue. There's a lot of concurrent dialogue, as people are effectively talking over and under each other to, to relay orders and whatnot. It's great stuff. <sighs> The idea of a broken ship having to operate like this is so fascinating to me. I wish they did more with this. Like, I wish they had an entire episode, or even episodes, dedicated towards making this kind of a thing work. Because it's, it's just a great aesthetic for me. I, I love it. I, I, I eat it up. Anyways, I don't actually have much else to add. I already talked about the politics. I talked about the morality. The vendetta. Like I said, I, I can't buy that this is not a vendetta. What do you guys think? As ever, looking forward to hearing your thoughts. I'll see you next time, guys.